please remain standing and take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to Leviticus chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray. Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we stand before you this morning recognizing that we are in need of your supernatural work in our lives. Uh, Lord, our hope is not in ourselves or our understanding. Our hope is not in the words of the preacher, but in the work of the Holy Spirit through those words to deliver a message that comes from you into the depths of our soul. And so we pray you would do that this morning. We pray that you would penetrate through hard hearts and cold hearts and tired hearts, and that you would enliven us by your Spirit through the working of your Word in order that you might be glorified in each and every single one of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Leviticus chapter 7, starting with verse 1. This is a law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on the pan or the griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. He, if he offers it for, a thing, for thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it, he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. For it is no empty word for you. You may be seated. 
holy is obviously a key theme throughout the scriptures. The word uh, holy appears 600 times in um, the Bible. And if you include words that are derived from it, like holiness, um, sanctification, to sanctify, then it, it's upwards of 700 times in the Bible. And as Kevin DeYoung points out, if you think about what that means, the conclusion is almost inescapable that in order to understand the story of Scripture, you have to understand what it means that God is holy. And certainly, as we've been making our way through the book of Leviticus, this idea of holy, God's holiness, is key to the drama of Leviticus, right? We've seen that really the Leviticus the drama of Leviticus is the question that comes down to how can sinners re-enter the presence of God, or to put it maybe even more in context in the book of Leviticus, how is it that because we struggle with sin as fallen human beings, that God's people may live in his presence without him departing? And so as we've looked specifically at the priestly ministry, we've, we've seen how uh, part and parcel of that priestly ministry is the upholding of God's holiness. The priests, in, in a very real sense, in their vocation are set apart to give careful attention to the holiness of God. And we've seen as well that as Jesus has come, As our great high priest, we as his followers, we as believers in Jesus Christ are caught up in this priestly ministry to the extent that we are called a kingdom of priests in Christ. And so um, in this particular passage that we've just looked at, we see this emphasis of the priestly ministry of carefully attending to the holiness of of God, and we, therefore, as believers in Christ, in our own priestly ministry, recognize that attending to His holiness is a very important part of our identity. And specifically, then, we see in Leviticus chapter 7 that the Lord sets apart priests to honor His holiness. The Lord sets apart, he, 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 he ordains these priests to specifically honor God's holiness, his own holiness. And um, as you think about the way in which this passage develops that main idea, there's kind of two horizons to this. The first horizon is the blessing in God's presence And then the second horizon is the bridging to God's presence. And so we see these two things. Let's start with that first point, the blessing in God's presence. Um, We see in verse 7, this is really a continuation of what we looked at last week, this priestly ministry, this word from God through Moses that is delivered especially to the priests. And here in verse 1, He's going to be specifically focusing on the guilt offering. And one of the things we see about this guilt offering that is repeated from the previous context is that it is most holy. Now, we've seen in part what that means is that 
Um, only the priests who have been set apart themselves have been ordained to serve in God's presence can eat this sacrificial meat. But this is as good a time as any to really ask the question, what exactly does it mean that God is holy? And as I've already alluded to, the, the Hebrew word that we translate holy here is a, a word that fundamentally means to be set apart. And as it's pl- applied to God, then, what that means is that God is superlatively set apart. He's, in other words, set apart in such a way that he is in a class by himself. In fact, he is a class unto his own, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we think of holiness or God's holiness in particular, we often think about the fact that God has about him this perfect moral purity. And certainly that is an important aspect of God's holiness. But as we see the way in which this concept unfolds throughout Scripture, we recognize that that isn't the limit of the idea of God's holiness. That in fact, God is set apart in all of his perfections. And so, for example, God is superlatively good so that he is the very standard of goodness. And that's true for all of who God is. His purity, his goodness, his sovereignty, and so on and so forth. He's set apart in all his perfections and is in a unique class In fact, we could say that part of what the holiness of God um, calls us to attend to is that God, as one who is a class unto himself, is creator, and everything else belongs to creature. He alone is the source of life. And when you think of his holiness, yes, do think of his moral purity, but think of all of his perfections. And think of the fact that he is in a class by himself, and therefore deserves the glory and honor and praise and respect that belongs to that reality of who he is. And so what we see in these um, sacrifices is that it is the vocation of the priest, it is their special purpose, if you will, to attend carefully to upholding and promoting the reality of God's holiness. And that's part of our priestly identity as well. And so we see that unfold here with the guilt offering. Now, um, when Jake preached a couple weeks ago, he reminded or he, he emphasized the fact that when someone sins against someone else, they also offend God and therefore must offer a guilt offering, right? And so um, whenever you think of the guilt offering, you should recognize that Yes, you have, we, we do sin against one another. We have to seek forgiveness from one another, but we, in doing that, also offend God. And so we must seek his forgiveness. And that's what the guilt offering is all about. Now, uh, in verse 2, the guilt offering is killed in the same place as the burnt offering. And part of the... the, the um, the idea that we need to seek forgiveness from God is evident in the fact that the blood has to be thrown against the altar. 
right? It, it's, it's alerting us to the fact that, yes, though I've offended you, I also have, in doing so, offended the holy God. And I need forgiveness. I need atonement from the sacrificial blood for that sin before God. Now, another aspect of um, the orientation toward God is presented to us in verse 3, because we're reminded here with the guilt offering, the priests are reminded, that all of the fat has to be offered. The fat of the tail and the um, fat that covers the entrails, the kidneys, and so on and so forth. And remember, when we've talked about that offering or burning of the fat, it, it is the best portion, and it has to be burnt as a symbol that this sacrifice is being offered toward God. And so yet another reminder that when we offend each other, we are also offending God. And that's an important idea for us. It's part of what it means to keep God holy before us. Um, and then in verse 5, um, they burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. Again, reminding us of the orientation of this guilt offering, though we have offended each other toward God, whom we have also in so doing offended. Um, and then in verse 6, every male among the priests may eat of it. Again, as this sacrifice has been offered to God, it is set apart as holy, and therefore only those who have equally been set apart as holy to God may eat of it. It's another way in which the holiness of God is both promoted and honored. Um, it also has to be eaten in a holy place because it is most holy. And so the guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There's one law for both of them with respect to the upholding of the holiness of these sacrifices and therefore being only the priests um, that can eat them. Um, look at verse 8. The priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering. And so now we've shifted from the guilt offering to the burnt offering. And remember, the burnt offering is, um, is that, that offering that is supposed to be fully offered over to the Lord. And so that means that the priest isn't going to get any of that meat. It's going to be all burned up. And yet, even here, the Lord provides for the priests. Now, um, it, this is an important concept in this whole context in 6 and 7, right? The idea is that these priests have been set apart specially to minister in the Lord's presence and to serve Him with their time. And what that means is that they aren't going to be able to cultivate the land or keep the flock. In other words, their time is taken up with serving the Lord in such a way that they're not going to have time to make a living in another fashion. But in His grace, the Lord provides for them. Despite their sin, despite their own need to offer sacrifices, remember, the Lord in His grace and His goodness toward them provides for them, and this is one tangible expression of that. It's a tangible expression of the Lord's grace toward the priests, that He provides the um, skin uh, or the hide of the sacrificial animal. Now, to you and I, that may not sound like a big deal, right? 
But in the original context, to get the hide of the animal was a significant provision. This was useful. It could be used to make all kinds of things that would be necessary to the daily lives of the people who lived in that time, right? And in fact, we have leather on our shoes this morning as one connecting point to recognize this was a valuable gift from the Lord, a tangible expression of his grace to the priests. Um, And then uh, in verse 9, we shift to the grain offering, and we're told that every grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that is prepared on the pan or griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. So all of the baked grain offerings they go to the priest who offers that particular sacrifice. Again, this is the Lord's gracious provision, another tangible expression of the grace to be found in the presence of God for the priests. Um, And then in verse 10, every grain offering that is not cooked, that is not baked, shall be shared equally among the sons of Aaron. So again, a different kind of provision, but Another, yet another tangible expression of the grace that the priests find in the presence of the Lord so that they can carry out their vocation of honoring and upholding the honor of the Lord's holiness. Sigmund Freud tells an interesting story about a little boy who is three years old who is uh, crying in the dark as he's trying to get to, to sleep, as he's visiting um, in, a, in a strange place. And the, the little three-year-old boy, as he's, as he's crying, is also crying out, saying, Auntie, will you please talk to me? Auntie, please talk to me. Because his auntie was in an adjacent room. And um, as the auntie, as, as his aunt hears this, she says to him, what good is it going to do? I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not in the room. And the little three-year-old boy, according to Freud, responds by saying, yes, but when you speak, it becomes light. See, he's, he's ostensibly afraid of the dark, but what you, what you come to realize as you listen to Freud's story is that ultimately it was not the dark that was frightening him. What was frightening him was that his loved one was not there present with him. And and that story reminds us of, I think, a truth that is being presented to us here in this text, which comes down to the fact that, brothers and sisters, for you and me, and for, in fact, all human beings, even though many of them don't recognize it, security is ultimately to be had only in the presence of our Heavenly Father, in the presence of the Lord. And and so the idea is that in the presence of the Lord, we have this security that that comes from the grace that we find from Him. And so if you think about what that means for us as believers in Jesus Christ, um, think about Abraham, for example, that Remember, in especially chapter 12 of Genesis, God says he's going to bless Abraham. And why is he doing that? Well, yes, it is for Abraham's blessing, but God goes on to say that as he blesses him, he will also do what? He will make him a blessing. 
And so as you, as you think about the grace that is to be found in the presence of God, you recognize that the same principle that was operating in Abraham's life is also operating in the lives of the priests. In God's presence, they are the beneficiaries of God's grace so that they can be a blessing to others. And that, is, that, that principle is also at, our, at work in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, isn't it? How are you saved? You are saved by grace through faith. That means that the finished work of Jesus Christ is what delivers to you the salvation that you receive by the hands of faith. And so we too are secure in God's presence not because we are so good, not because we are perfect in and of ourselves, not because we are so smart or so holy in and of ourselves, but on the basis of the, G, of G, of the grace that comes to us through Jesus. And so what does that mean practically? Well, it means that we are able to uphold, to honor the grace, or the sorry, the holiness of God in our lives because we are secure in God's presence by His grace. He blesses us so that we can in turn be a blessing. Now, we'll look at more ways in which is the case, but for just a moment, let's think about this. You and I have been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, We can and we must forgive others. Now, did God forgive you uh, because it wasn't really that big of a deal? Or did you deeply offend him by your sin and yet he forgave you? And so we are able to, uh, to forgive those who have deeply hurt us because we have so been forgiven. Or again, We are able to reserve judgment against those we are tempted to judge, perhaps especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, because Jesus has taken our judgment upon himself. And so we can and we must reserve that judgment because that's how we've been treated. And so on and so forth. It doesn't feel like we can forgive or reserve judgment in the moment. We feel we have good reasons not to forgive. We feel that we have the best possible reasons to judge that other person. And yet we can and we must forgive and reserve judgment because that's how God in his grace treats us. And that security on which we stand of his grace is what therefore enables us to extend grace to others. And brothers and sisters, that is upholding the holiness of God, because that's not how people in a fallen condition naturally relate to each other. But it is how we are called to relate as those who have inherited this priestly ministry in order that we may uphold, honor God's holiness. So the first horizon here is this grace that is available only in the presence of God. But then there's a second aspect, and that is bridging to 
God's presence. Uh, in a very real way, uh, this image of a bridge is helpful, I think, when you think about the whole idea of the priestly ministry. Um, of course, there's other ways to describe it. There's other things we could attend to. But the basic idea of the priest is one who bridges between sinners and a holy God. And, of course, Jesus is our great high priest in that very sense. But look at verse 11. Um, here we're shifting to the peace offerings now. Remember that the peace offering was the one sacrifice when the worshiper, the one who is offering the sacrifice, was able to not only offer the sacrifice, but then also participate in the eating of that sacrificial meat. And, and so remember that in this way, the peace offering in particular is, is symbolizing the, um, not only the effectiveness of the sacrifice to forgive sinners, but the restoration to the presence of God that that sacrifice achieves. So that you, as a culmination of the peace offering, were invited by God himself to sit down to a meal with him in his presence. And not only enjoy that meal in his presence, but as an expression of the fellowship that he has given you, uh, in receiving the sacrifice. Now, in verse 12, what we see is that this peace offering has a couple of different um, expressions, specific uh, sort of under peace offerings, if you will. And the first one that we encounter in verse 12 is the one that is offered for thanksgiving. That word that we have translated thanksgiving there refers specifically to the praise and thanksgiving that one would offer as a result of um, God answering some prayer. And so the idea is that you have, you have prayed and you have asked God to intervene in your life in some specific way, and now you have seen him answer that prayer. You are aware that he's delivered a response to your prayer, and so you offer the thanksgiving sacrifice. And what does that look like? Well, um, when you offer it, you have to offer it with unleavened loaves that are mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and also loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. The, uh, uh, with the sacrifice of the peace offering, um, you're to bring these offering, uh, these loaves uh, as part of that. Now, part of that's going to become um, part of that thanks or that meal that I just mentioned with God, but look at verse fourteen. From it, he, the worshiper also has to offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord, and in turn, God Himself passes that gift on to the priest. It, it shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And so, again, this tangible expression of God's goodness to the priest. But also now, what's going on here? Well, the priest is, is serving, he's using his time, he's dedicating his, his labor to this sacrifice so that it can accomplish the very things that we just talked about. 
And so now the one to whom God is being gracious is also participating in the extension of God's grace to the worshiper, right? He's a bridge between the sinner and God in his grace to the sinner. Um, So the priest gets the peace offering, and then in verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering for Thanksgiving has to be eaten on the day of offering. And so it's not just that the priest becomes an instrument of God's grace in his service to the worshiper. It's also that, that the priest is representing God himself, right? The priest is the one who's responsible for upholding this idea that this holy meal has to be eaten on the day of the sacrifice. And why? Because in upholding that stipulation, he is upholding the holiness of the Lord. And so he represents God as well. And then as we come to verse 16, we have a second class of peace offerings. Um, and there's, there's kind of two elements to this. There is uh, the sacrifice of his offering that is a vow offering, or secondly, a free will offering. So the vow offering was, um, it, it, may have, it was often the case that the people of God would make a vow before the Lord. And the idea was that, Lord, if you answer my question, this is, this is how I will express my thanks to you. Now, it's tempting to think that what they were trying to do was buy the favor of the Lord, but that's not what it was about. It was about, um, in advance, preparing the worshiper to see the way in which the Lord would answer that prayer, that, that vow. And so it was a way of you know, the the worshiper on the one hand, dedicating himself to that vow or herself to that vow, but also a a way of of expressing uh, that um, the the worshiper would return the thanks to God, recognizing the dependence in order to carry out the vow. Um, the, The second type is a little bit different. The free will offering was more spontaneous, right? It was it was something in which the, um, the uh, worshiper is just overjoyed by seeing the Lord work in their lives in such a way that they more spontaneously would offer that free will offering. But in either case, um, this, this sacrifice is a little bit different in that you can eat it on the next day or also the third day. But notice the seriousness of this in verses 17 and 18. What remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. It has to be given over to the Lord. And what happens if the worshiper refuses to do that or doesn't do that by negligence? Look at verse 18. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. The ramifications are quite serious, right? Neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. In other words, either um, either the, the, the sacrifice was never effective, which is how Jewish, off, Jewish commentators often construed it, or because of the disobedience, it was now rendered ineffective. In other words, the whole point of offering the sacrifice is undermined by the disobedience 
And so, again, just drawing our attention to the seriousness of the priestly function of upholding the holiness of the Lord. And so we see that this is an important part of the priestly vocation. And have you thought about that in your own life? Um, The way in which part of your vocation as a believer in Christ is to attend to God's holiness, to give special and careful attention to that in this world. One of the uh, best examples that I've come across, I think, and at least it stands out in my mind as one of the best examples, comes from Charles Hodge, the great 19th century um, Princeton theologian. When he was younger and an undergraduate at Princeton, he had the privilege of serving with, uh, um, or, or, or being the pupil assistant, if you will, of um, one of the great scientists uh, in America in that day, a man by the name of Joseph Henry. And this was also the same time in which electricity was just being understood and discovered. And so um, Henry was conducting a number of experience, uh, experiments related to um, electricity. And Hodge, in his memoirs, uh, records how Henry would be very um, careful about the ways in which he would set up these experiments. And when it came time for the experiment to actually be carried out, um, Hodge remembers him being um, stationed by Henry at one end of the electrical circuit. And Henry, who is who is over the experiment was at the other end of, of the, um, the electric circuit. And uh, he would remember occasionally that Henry would, would ask him to take off his hat and give silent worship to the Lord. And he, he would, right after that, he would say to Hodge, the reason I'm asking you to do this is because God is present right now, and I'm about to ask him the question. You know, and maybe it sounds like a mundane thing, but that was Henry performing this priestly duty of calling Hodge to attend to God's presence and the holiness that it brought. And brothers and sisters, that that is a great example, I suggest to you, of how this ministry of priesthood ought to take shape in each and every single one of our lives. Yet, we may ask the question, well, what what might that look like for us specifically? Um, You know, it may be that sometimes the way in which we are called to honor God's holiness is by bringing his word to bear on some important issues that are being raised in our cultural milieu. And there's all kinds of these that I'm sure come to mind, even as I say that, right? Um, it might be the, the sanctity of unborn life. It might be what it means for us to be human. Um, it may be any number of other issues. Sexual, sexual ethics is a big one right now, right? And so one way that we may call, be called to bear witness to the holiness of God is to remind people that God has spoken on these issues and, um, and to call them to consider what he has said. But 
something that is true of all of us in each of our day-to-day lives is the reality of relationships. And I would suggest to you that particularly in the relationships that we have, whether it's as a husband or wife, or as a parent, or as a child to your parents, or toward your siblings, or the relationships that we have in the body of Christ toward one another, within the context of our relationships, this is a prime place that we are called to honor the holiness of the Lord in our relationships. And so what will that look like? Well, you know what it's looked like by virtue of reading your New Testament. We read this morning from Romans that, that, that in our relationships, we are called not to show wrath toward others, but to live, leave room for God's wrath. Are you doing that in your relationships with your siblings, in your relationships as spouses, with your children, parents? And are we doing that here at Cornerstone in these relationships that we have with one another as you look around the room? And please do look around the room. It is especially in this context that we are called to um, uphold the honor of God's holiness as we relate to each other. We have been bound together in Jesus Christ, and that means that we are not at liberty to treat one another out of the sinful desires of our flesh. And so, like the world, do you only purpose and act to engage in the relationships that are easiest for you, those that belong to natural affinity? Or are you reckoning your call to love because Jesus has bound you together in himself, in the bond of the Holy Spirit, in order to love one another? Do you recognize that whether or not we are loving one another in that way is very much bound up with upholding the holiness of God? In other words, we are called to uphold the holiness of God in our relationships with one another in the sense that we are called to be holy as he is holy. And as we do, that honors his holiness. So, are you loving people? Do you you consider others above yourself? Or are you only considering yourself in the darkness of your own soul? And you see, it takes us back to the first principle, doesn't it? Because it's natural to to treat one another in all of the ways that I've just described. It's easy to, to pour out your wrath on the person that you're angry with or to refuse to have anything to do with someone else because you don't happen to have much in common with that person. That's natural. That's the way the world behaves. What's supernatural is to love one another beyond affinity because of the bond that Jesus has given us. What's unnatural, what's supernatural is to to forgive, to not exhaust your wrath on someone else, not to pass judgment. And the only way that you can do that, therefore, 
is out of the presence of the Holy Spirit who gives you grace to be able to live that way so that you can do what is only supernatural. And that's our priestly calling, brothers and sisters. That, I suggest to you, is perhaps the most fundamental way in our priestly identity that we are able to honor the holiness of God among one another. It's a holy calling. It's a holy calling that we're only able to carry out because there is grace in the presence of of God. There is blessing that enables us to be a blessing so that we can be that bridge between sinners and a holy God. And that's our calling as a kingdom of priests. And how are we doing in that calling? It's an important question for each and every one of us to ask this morning as we sit here. Um, And as we look around and we see the particular people that God has placed in our lives in this body that are the context in which we are called to live out this priestly calling. And so may God grant His grace that we are able to.